Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 21st of the 8th, it is a Friday. The weather is frightful, although inside it remains delightful. Michael, how have you been? <laughs> uh, I, I saw that more as a, as a winter, <laughs> imagining snow outside. It's, I've been fine, it has, as you say, been horrible and wet and windy, but the schools will be opening soon, so... Fingers crossed. Maybe. Well, if they open, we can hope that we'll have three or four weeks of decent weather in September. And then they'll close again in October and it'll start to rain. Okay. So we've got a couple of things we want to go through this week. There's a, a case there for the Leaving Cert involving homeschooled, where the a family brought a case against the government. One, we'll be talking about the impact of that. There was a golf classic, the table listings of which have now leaked and become public. And that may lead to the resignation of a minister. We have Stephen Donnelly, who came out and delivered something that appeared to just be like a vomit of words, meaningless and without purpose. Mm -hmm. And he got widely mocked for it. However, we want to talk about the fact that what he was saying, what he was trying to say, was actually an excellent point. He just delivered it like he had never talked to anyone before in his life yeah it was like very much english was a second language it was legitimately about two steps away from that scene in the simpsons where grandpa simpson says that he used to tie onions to his belt for some reason presumably to protect him from tigers i don't know <laughs> it, it wasn't good but his underlying point was good but before we get on to that i have to i have to just a brief aside here michael yeah i saw something we were talking about connor lally Yes. Other week, and Connor was is a he is the security and criminal and crime editor for the Irish Times. Yes, very eminently respected man, and he was saying it was uh, outrageous that the GAA would dare to ask for someone to come to them and explain the evidence behind uh, the policy requirement for them to stop people from going to matches. Yes, whatever about that, Gemma O'Doherty. It was reported by I think the Irish Times that Gemma O'Doherty had said that she felt her life was in danger. Okay? Yes. Mr. Lally reposted that tweet with only an emoji, Michael. No words. That emoji was a a very happy-looking face wearing a party hat and with some sort of streamer. Sort of those noisemaker streamer party things that people blow into making when people cut the cake. I, I, I think we could say emoticons all represent different feelings, and that one seemed to represent rapturous joy and celebration. It was an odd choice, I would have thought. I, I would also say it was a bit odd, Michael. I would imagine that the security and crime editor of the Irish Times would, or should, not react to any private citizen of this country saying that they felt their life was in danger with joy. It's all a bit tedious when people start to put you in the position where you feel like you have to go in defense of Gemma. I mean, you do want you do want to say to them, why are you doing that to me? Why are you making me say these things? As I saw for the first time, my thought was purely, no, no Connor, don't make me do this. Don't make me say, defend Gemma O'Doherty. And I don't agree with the woman on nearly any political issue. But I'm not going to wish her ill. I'm not going to... And and then he was liking tweets from other people saying that uh, she wishes others ill and is happy to let her people be violent towards others. I'm sort of going, well, then maybe you shouldn't do that if you think that's terrible. It's odd. I mean, coming from a man who is patently a rather sensitive, a rather delicate flower. I mean, I don't know if you saw that one of his tweets about the GEA, who he found to, to be unspeakably arrogant... At, or at the, at the at at worst, certainly extremely poor in the expression of what they want to do because you know science and never they are not policy makers by the way, Gary. You know that they are demanding these people who who don't make policy, it's government making policy, and I'm glad I, I'm glad I'm glad to know that because an awful lot of us were under the impression that wasn't actually true. But he has this he tweet where he says, um, "Whoever decided the statement was a good idea should be kept to the back." of the House of Future. It was literally nauseating. Now that means that the GA statement, which I, you, you could take as Connor has, you take it as I had, which was a perfectly reasonable request for empirical evidence from a large voluntary organization, that actually upset his tummy. It was literally nauseating. And I know that that's what happened because this man writes for the Irish Times. 
And somebody who writes for the Irish Times isn't somebody who could think that literally is just like an enforcative meaning, figurative meaning, actually figuratively nauseating. I mean, also, Michael, Conor Lally has been a journalist from 2002. He's been the security and crime editor of the Irish Times since July 2014. So over six years. Yes. That sort of sensitivity, I, I, I mean, I would have just thought he'd build up a bit of a stronger stomach. You know, I tell you, who's the guy, Paul somebody? He writes never-ending series of books about crime in Dublin and crime gangs and the penguin and the otter and the hamster and all these people that are involved. Paul Williams. Yeah. Now, you, you can't see him being nauseated easily. He obviously has a strong stomach. He's the kind of guy, you know those guys that used to get in America back in the 30s who used to go around and take photographs of the gruesome, blood-spattered bodies of the assassination victims of the mafia or whoever and put them on the front pages of the yellow press. Imagine Williams would be a bit in, in that character. I don't think Connor is one of those. I think Connor would find the whole thing a bit depressing, a bit, a, a, a bit upsetting. Are you implying that Connor is not a, a good old-fashioned muckraking hack? I'm just saying that Connor has informed us that reading a policy, uh, reading a, a, a statement from the GA was literally nauseating. You know, he has a bit of a dicky tummy. You don't want to expose somebody like that to scenes of gore, do you? Not if you want to keep not if you want to keep your shoes clean, anyway. I mean, luckily enough, Michael, there would never be any serious criminal or terrorist element on this country which he may have to cover well not in the irish times anyway <laughs> anyway that's that's on passing it was it was not it listen at the end of the day we're talking about an emoticon and emoticons are not even hieroglyphics you know we we understand from them people what translates these things that hieroglyphics have meanings which we can be fairly specific about we are projecting an understanding onto that hieroglyphic onto that emoticon we are that sim that particular piece of semiotics we're investing in it with meaning now it is a face of a, a smiling person with with a with a, a noisemaker and a party hat so you know <laughs> it's not it's it's a legitimate interpretation i don't think we're making a massive leap here no you know anything you're not jumping the grand canyon it is a wonderful example of the damage that social media has done to journalism as a profession <laughs> because it used you know it, they were they're in the distance and you never saw journalists they would just they'd come out and they'd with great authority say their piece and you would imagine them studiously constantly looking for information and cleansing themselves of bias and through whips or some other measurement. And uh, then social media came along and then you got to look at media. And I think a fair amount of the public very quickly realised that some of these people are biased, some are unpleasant, and some of them are just legitimately thick. <laughs> okay. that's uh... They destroyed the, the aura of specialness around them by dealing with people. I'm not enormously sure there was ever much of an aura about them in, in this country. I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking here of who in the last X number of years, who in my lifetime or even in the last couple of generations would have fitted into a, the role of a journalist that people regarded with. A, I mean, I suppose back in the day, Miles Nagopoline writing in, would he, Miles have used emoticons? I, maybe he would have. I don't, I don't I, imagine. I, mean... I don't imagine so. I've only Are, used an emoticon once, and that was accidentally. So. Well, I think if you're using text, you know. No, there's no, no Michael. Tone. I don't think tone is particularly an issue for you, Gary. I think you just it is what it is. You don't project tone, and you don't give tone. Other people look for tone; they hear tone. So, knowing that, I think sometimes it's important. So, we were talking the last on the last podcast about how there were definitely going to be legal challenges and the state was going to lose those legal challenges. And the day we recorded it, later that day, uh, the state lost a legal challenge. Yes, Elijah Burke. Elijah Burke of the Burke family, um, yes. homeschooled, won a, his high court challenge against the Minister for Education. And um, what had happened is because he was homeschooled, his mother was the person who was giving the projected grades. And the Minister for Education, it was decided to exclude 
people in his position because they said that their calculated grades would be biased. Which is weird because they seem to have built the entire system on the assumption there's bias and that's why they're running all of these algorithms on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by these algorithms. I want somebody to sit down and explain in words of no more than two syllables exactly how all that's going to work. But My favourite was the part where they have to say that it was uh, it was going to advantage girls. They're like, oh, fantastic, we've made a sexist algorithm. And then their explanation was that, well, research we have shows that teachers are more highly rate uh, male students, so we need to counteract that. But what if a boy had a student who didn't? Who had no bias. He He's just on the down here. That So effectively, students of teachers who don't have bias are going to be punished. That doesn't sound... And you don't know who these teachers are, so that doesn't sound great, does it? Also, that... I'd like... I'd like to see how that research was done and how recently it was done and the methodology, because there there have... There's other research has been done recently... For example, regarding attitudes of men and women to men and women and achievements of men and women, which suggests that men are less positive about men and more positive about women and women are more positive about women and less positive about men. And I'm skeptical. I'd like to see how robust the research is on the thing about predicted grades from what, I've, from what I've looked at it, the research on that particular area isn't terribly solid. Um, isn't terribly solid at all, which is, I would say, another reason the State Examination Commission is so happy to not have to be involved in this. Well, one of the, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but one of the issues, for example, that I, I, I they, they've talked about they're going, they're going to be doing corrections they're going to do the corrections, which are supposed to be based on deprivation or socioeconomic factors, so that schools that are schools that are, that whose whose population comes from a certain kind of socioeconomic background. Well, how is that going to work? I mean, in other jurisdictions, they have because they've been trying to get the thing accurate, if you want to use that phrase, have said that have have marked students down. From predicted grades within the schools, the predicted grades the teachers gave them have been marked down. If they go above the level which you would normally expect from a school of that type, because those schools underperform, shall we say, the national average, whereas other kinds of schools overperform the national average. So private schools, voluntary schools, that kind of thing. So again, the assumption is that the teachers are going to be, if the school is deprived, that teachers going to underestimate. The projected results, but say, take for example, you you, you take a school like, uh, um, what's the Jesuit school there in the north side, uh, Belvedere. Now I can't remember the numbers, but a fairly significant proportion of the students in in Belvedere are actually drawn from the local community, just the north side inner city. Mm. Part of Jesuits outreach programs, part of their their charism. Now, I, how are they going to distinguish between the results of the kids drawn from the deprived areas as opposed to the kids drawn from the sons of architects and lawyers living in Glassy Drumcondra and Glasnevin. How 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 are they going to know which one is which to make for that allowance? And all of the all of the private schools in Dublin will have a certain number of students drawn from areas of deprivation art schools. All of the private schools I can think of, both inside Dublin and out, have some form of outreach or they have a Bursary or something like that that will go to students who couldn't otherwise afford to go to that school. So, are students who come from deprived areas but go to those schools, are they going to be punished because they end up in those schools? Whereas, if they had gone rather to a different school but did the same work and got maybe less results, would have actually been better off. Anyway, point being, I can't see how this is going to work. No. No, I mean, they've created a situation in which two students who are identical grade-wise in when you look back at their previous work and mocks and things like that and are given identical projected grades by their teachers will receive different end results based on an algorithm which the department will utilise and which they have explained but which they have not published. Now, in the particular case of Elijah... Elijah's taught by his mother. His mother is a qualified teacher, but because his mother was qualified, was his teacher, she was considered not to be a suitable person. But 
to make an estimate or a prediction about what his his grades would be. Now, Elijah had done projects and mocks and yeah. everything that he would have done in school. And if you are in a school and you end up being taught by your parent or by someone there might be a conflict of interest, there are steps in place in the system already to handle that. It was just homeschool students. Homeschool, homeschool students were basically told, well, no, you just don't get to do this. You just don't get to do this. So the, in the, the, the decision, Mr. Justice Charles Meenan uh, was fairly forthright. It was, he, it was fairly vicious. Like It was, it was a yeah, kicking. His rights, that, that, that he had breached his rights, it was unfair and it was discriminatory. He was being punished for being schooled at, at home and so on and so forth. Now, there's another, obviously this is him, but in the evidence that was made available by the Department of Education and the legal documents submitted to the court, uh, it's now estimated up to 3,000 grades would not have been awarded to Leaving Cert students on the basis that, quote, the satisfactory evidence was not available on which to base an estimated percentage mark. Now, that's a, that's a report of the Times. Um, in the defendant, it says, his decision was based on what the court believed were the correct legal principles and was applicable to all students who found themselves in the same situation. So that means they're going to be 3,000 grades. Now, that's not 3,000 students, that's 3,000 papers. So we don't know how many students. For example, many of the students will be from non-Irish family backgrounds who are studying their family's first language. And in maybe the case, in many cases, the student's only tutor in the language is a close family relative. So there will be people, uh, say, doing Russian or Polish or Lithuanian or whatever, but and maybe but two languages, but because they're being, they're being tutored by their parents, to the extent they're being tutored at all. Now, they, uh, they, they fall under the edges of this judgment. Other people who are also being homeschooled, people who are doing subjects by themselves without the aid of a teacher in school, fall under the ages of this. Now, it seems that the only way they're going to be able to do this is with some kind of system where a teacher actually is appointed to go over the coursework that they have done, the project work that they have done, maybe mocks if they have done any mocks, and talking to the student. In other words, a some kind of a possibly like a mini oral exam in the subject matter so is this going to cause another delay in the whole process it's hard to see how this can be done in time are they going to just go ahead with the results and then fill this fill these in later will that affect cao cao offers because one of the issues that the judge addressed was the fact that essentially what this would was going to do is if he was forced to wait to sit the exam rather than to get a predicted grade would be that that would mean he would be to uh, have to defer his his uh, attendance at college for a year that would materially uh, be of material damage to him so are this is the CAO going to have to be delayed now I mean, it's all good fun Gary it's all good fun but sure you know it was obviously going to end up this way and now they've backed themselves into a corner I mean, the British ended up basically just going, all right, the algorithms, the advanced thing, throw it in the fucking bin. Whatever the teachers said, you just take that. Just just take that. Maybe some minor adjustments, but we're not doing this. This is just, I think that's this like, isn't a runner. I think in the North, in the North that's the line they've decided to take now as well. That whatever the predicted grade teacher was giving you, and then we'll work out what to do with the rest. Now, listen, you, fact is... Maybe this was always just going to be a mess that it's the year that is in it, that the Leaving Cert wasn't a goer. There wasn't a way to do it. Um, they couldn't postpone it. And that's just the way it is. But whatever about this year, I think that this is going to slow down considerably the enthusiasm and the eagerness within the department to implement this kind of system, which within the department, there are people who would love to see the Leaving Cert effectively abolished as an exam and everything to be done on coursework, predicted grades, and then with the possibility of using an algorithm to correct for gender, for race, for deprivation, for all sorts of income and issues like that. I mean, what will happen is, Someone who is unhappy with their grade will go to court and they will get that algorithm. They will be given 
the algorithm and they will look at it in detail and they may release it for other people to look at and God knows what's in there. But we know it's taking sex into account. We know it's taking demographic information into account. It could be taking class information into account. I mean, there could be anything in there. It's, will it take in his? Will will it take in school type, like private school, boarding school, voluntary school? Will it take historical results into account as well? But let's say someone misses out in a college place for ten points, mm-hmm. and then they find that the algorithm took fifteen points away from them because of the place they live. They're going to sue. And the thing is that the, what the court a lot of the time is going to have to make a judgment on is whether or not this was fair. And it won't be a question of the, the court trying to decide whether or not this person would have got this grade or that grade, but rather, was this system fair and equal and to all students? And when it's actually explicitly designed not to be fair, it's going to be hard for them to make that argument. Well, that's the problem. The department have walked themselves into a situation where they have openly admitted that the algorithm is effectively discriminatory. And now they have to try and get through this with that thing standing up. And once it comes out and people can check that, and it will come out, they won't be able to stop it if the lawsuits start. There's no way they'll come out of that looking good. I mean, look at the the UK algorithm. That algorithm dropped the points of 40% of all pupils. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, it's a mess. But it was an entirely foreseeable mess, and therefore we can only hope the department gets what's coming to it. Well, yeah, it's all, it's all good fun. It's all good fun, unless, of course, you happen to be a child or a parent in the maw, in, in the maw of the system. And no, it's not a great time for that. Although, you know, if, if you get your results and you get your predicted grades and you can choose between them, you're, you're not quite getting two cracks of the whip, but, like... You're getting more than one. Yeah. But anyway. Anyway, indeed. Stephen Donnelly, Michael. Stephen Donnelly came out and made a point that no other Irish politician, no other, at least at ministerial level, uh, has made. And is actually an incredibly important point that we now need to start talking about rather than just going, well, we have to lock down everything immediately again. Yeah. And he did it in such a cack-handed fashion that he may, on his own, kill the idea. It was car crash stuff, really, wasn't it? So, for those who, who didn't see this, Stephen Donnelly was trying to explain the concept of acceptable risk tolerance, which is to basically the idea that everyone says one death is unacceptable, and everyone says it because it, it feels like the right thing. But when you look around, everything around you, there are things that we could stop doing and would save lives, and we don't do it. Yes. The classic example is... We could stop all car accidents, which kill many people and cripple others by banning cars. We yeah, don't do that. We don't. I mean, the example I've used before on this podcast is the difference between the safety of driving a Mercedes 500 series and my little elderly Fiat Panda. Now, the Fiat Panda is far, far less safe, and I am far more likely to come out on skates if I have a prang in a, 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 a big Mercedes. So if you decided tomorrow, okay, from now on, all cars will have to be as safe as Mercedes. It wouldn't mean that tomorrow everybody will be driving Mercedes. What it would mean is far, far fewer people will be driving cars. But we don't do that because that, that of precisely that. That the cost of demanding that level of safety across the board would be so high that it would actually lead to negative consequences on the other side. And so there is there is an acceptable risk level there is a tolerance for risk based on the benefit that we get from cars we put in a minimum we put in a minimum baseline we say it has to be this safe after that you pay for higher levels of safety you pay for higher levels of comfort and performance but it's one of those it's one of the characters that you pay you pay more money for you you, you assess what the minimum level will be and then you work from there yeah, and this is this is all throughout society. We don't really think about it, and we definitely don't talk as if it's there. But when you actually examine things, many, many things are built in the full knowledge that they hurt people, because they also provide some benefit. And Stephen Donnelly was trying to explain that there is a level of risk in reopening schools, but it falls within that uh, that tolerable level of risk based on the benefit. And... Instead, he just starts and then he does what we we in, you know, the business world would call a a hard pivot 
to trampolines. Yeah, oh, the tra- I don't And he's, he's trying to explain the trampolines are actually very dangerous. And yeah. they are, yes. But children love them, and so we still have them. And I knew what he was trying to talk about, because I un- I know about the concept already. But I was listening to him going, like, I can't imagine there's a member of the public listening to this who is now like, oh, I get what he's saying. This is just rambling. And, you know, you, you had to feel like, was was trampolines, was that the best example? I mean, presumably he went in to make this point. He had been thinking about this. He had been talking to people about this. There had been some preparation about this. And uh, he, he, it's hard to imagine that they, himself and his advisors, special or otherwise, his civil servants said, you know what? trampolines that's that's what people will get he starts at the car example and you're like okay strong right, reasonable yeah. and then just trampolines trampolines and he kind of goes into it in a way where you're like he starts talking about sports and he's like well sports are inherently risky and i'm like okay a bit of a jump but I, yeah let's see and then just uh children on trampolines okay no 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 this is done we're done here go home there was a curious thing, I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, where somebody apparently went over the responses to his statement on Twitter. Now, how scientifically this was done, I do not know. And I would put this in very much in in, in, in the category of statements where, or sentences which would begin with the word apparently. Now, there's, there's, have you ever seen, there's a thing, there's science, as yeah. in S-C-I-E-N-C-E. Yeah. And then there is capital S, C-I-N-C-E, exclamation mark yeah that kind of thing things that may not be true but have the sort of aura of science aren't science they're science science anyway somebody went through these responses and checked and checked the shall we say the negativity positivity otherwise of on the basis of the gender of the respondents and found that women were far more dismissed far more aggressively dismissive of him uh than men were that uh, the men seemed to be saying uh, they were willing to take his inability to speak English or communicate at a normal level if this was going to be a trade-off for competence. Whereas uh, the the women were, were, were there was a, why the hell isn't this guy, I mean, Simon Harris was such a brilliant communicator. This guy is just awful. Yeah, Simon Harris also did, you know, kill quite a lot of people through ineptitude. Just putting that out there you could say that i i couldn't possibly comment i mean you could if you weren't so worried he'd sue you constantly <laughs> yeah again you could say that i couldn't possibly comment but whether or not that's true, i don't know but sir it, it, i can if that is true and i say i that's very much i put that in the context of sentences that begin apparently uh you know you see it is on facebook and twitter all the time well i apparently if you take this and if you you know, if you tie an onion to your to your belt and so on and so forth. But I can get what he was trying to do. And I think the really unfortunate thing is it's something which is very important. We we had been talking about this before, several times. Nobody in the government is doing it enough. There hasn't been enough nuanced discussion about this. And it's just rather unfortunate it ends up in this, in this, frankly, this Fiat Panda of a car crash. This was not a, a Mercedes 500 car crash. This was a Fiat Panda, and it, it it all ended up rather badly. I mean, this is the thing. The, that, this whole, any death is unacceptable, is childish, because it's unrealistic. It doesn't take in the actual situation. And while I understand why people like to say it, and we say it about everything, that you know we would never do anything that would allow one death, that's not how societies function. There is an acceptable level of death. And because we can't have that conversation about health matters it limits our ability to respond to them appropriately not to be rather than say there's an acceptable level of death and i i, I want to say the same thing but shall we change it around rather than saying there's like there is an unacceptable level of safety there's a point at which safety becomes impossible and it becomes actually counterproductive that what appears like safety while it's saving you from one bad thing it ends up killing you from another bad thing take the take the start of this when we start social distancing Mm -hmm. impactful changed people's lives changed culture a fair bit but overall relatively small change behaviorally 
and a relatively small infringement upon people's abilities to live their lives. Yeah. Highly impactful. But every subsequent step has delivered less for a heavier trade. And there's a question of, there is absolutely a point where you go, okay, no, we can't do this. We cannot have the country go into a full lockdown for two years. It simply can't happen. It's not achievable. And we can't seem to, we're having what is frankly a childish discussion about it. Because we can't accept, we can't just accept that certain things are not worth the trade-off. And we will hit that point, assuming we haven't hit it already. Again, brutally speaking, if we were to do that, if we were to have it too, that would kill people. And it would kill large numbers of people. It would kill more people than COVID would ever kill. And if we were because of because of the 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 health economic trade-offs that would occur for doing that and it's that's the question of the of of the balance and it's we have failed in the past to protect vulnerable people here's here's a, here's a point though michael we're we're talking in a very particular sense as if not going into a full lockdown should one be called for is going to kill people but there is also an argument that when you look at the wider mortality, when you look at things like suicides, people who aren't getting medical treatment in hospitals because they have pulled back to you know, to focus on COVID-19, people who are missing appointments for things to do with cancer, that this may not actually save any lives. That's a perfectly, absolute, perfectly reasonable question to be asking, to, well, to have been asking already and certainly to be asking now. If we're looking at people who are not who are missing cancer appointments, people who are not being tested, particularly in diseases where we know that early diagnosis and early treatment massively changes the prognosis for the for the individual uh, dealing with that particular illness or disease. And a few doctors have made that point. Yeah, uh, we know. I know personally. I mean, it's an anecdote, but I know of somebody who'd had a, a stroke. And ended up actually turned out to be quite a severe stroke, but delayed going to hospital for more than twenty four hours because of the the current situation. Because they knew they because they didn't want to go into hospital because they were afraid of going into hospital. Because if you go to hospital, you might catch COVID. I mean, and also because they were told, you know, you be careful, you know, don't over the system, or whatever. But I'm sure there are other people who are experiencing symptoms where they should be going to their doctor, who should or they should be presenting in any, and they haven't been. Leaving aside all, we know that operations have been cancelled or postponed. And leaving aside people who are going to have their lives shortened by that fact, we're also looking at people who, the quality of life issues here also for people who are enduring life with very severe pain and that who who are going to have their lives impacted by fact that their operations are being cancelled and going to be pushed who knows how far down the line. So it's, it's not easy, and I'm not suggesting it's easy, but at least we need to start having some kind of a conversation about this. We was never, it was always, sorry, cutting across here, but from the very beginning, and this is the point I've been trying to make to people who have said to me that I've changed my tune on this. After we had succeeded in doing what was necessary at the beginning, and maybe people now say it wasn't necessary, I still think on the basis of what we knew it was the right thing to do, was to try and save the, the system from collapsing in the way that it seemed to have done in Italy, in the, in the north of Italy when the outbreak happened there. So we didn't want the hospitals breaking down, the ICUs being over, overrun. It was accepted that at the time in the discussions that I remember, maybe I'm wrong, Gary, but my memory is that people said, okay, when we start to open up again, there will be an increase in cases. And we're going to have to manage that with things like testing and contact tracing, etc. Now, we now seem to have moved the discussion on that we're, we're surprised and horrified and terrified by the fact that there are new cases. And also, I'm left to wonder to what extent, you know, this idea we're going to have this super rapid system of contact testing and con how how quickly are we getting these tests back i mean we know that the any, a delay between testing is obviously going to be problematic if you're going to leave people days and, and longer and the the, the the availability for contagion but is, how is that is that system there in place is it working wonderfully well is contact tracing i i maybe it is but I, I, that's not the sense that i have what number is considered to be 
acceptable? Do we have a sense? Is there an acceptable number of new cases? Well, what we're now seeing is, is people saying that we will have zero. Zero is the only appropriate level. And I have talked to a couple of people involved in this sort of thing. And the question I've asked them is, okay, let's, let's say Ireland, totally get rid of it in Ireland. How do you stop it from coming back into the country just in general, given that we are a major international trading hub? Yeah. And considering that we have a very, very substantial tourist industry, which if we want the country to go back to normal, if we're going to allow that to, to come back in. But leaving aside that, let's close the tourist industry down. You, we are an open economy which has many, many international companies centred here. Look at New Zealand. New Zealand was the the idea. New Zealand had achieved suppression. Well, I'm, and I'm not, I don't say this way, well, New Zealand, it's back. And they had to start shutting stuff down again. And that's the problem. That's not sustainable. In the same way you can't run the lockdown for two years, you can't constantly go to businesses and go, and now you're open, and now you're closed, and now you're open, and now you're closed. It's, you, you can't keep staff doing that. And you can't yeah. keep businesses. So it doesn't. It's, it's, it, it is a conversation we're going to have to eventually have. And also we're going to have to talk about disparate impact. Because it doesn't impact on everyone the same. In fact, we know... And mortality is strongly contained within older age demographics. Yes, younger people can die, but younger people can also die of effectively anything. It's a question of how many of them die. And if that's the case, well then, is that not something that you suggest to people in a certain age demographic? That they should cocoon or they should keep themselves inside or they should be careful and other people keep reasonable but, you know, go out and go about your business and then it's a choice for the people to decide what is an acceptable risk profile for them. Now, we've seen the numbers of the numbers begin to start to go up again at the beginning of July. Are there, is it, is it in July, you start to see the creep, the numbers starting to increase again. Now, say we go on for another number of weeks, five, six weeks, and we keep getting new cases, 100 new cases, 150 new cases a day, whatever it is which is obviously very bad news. But if we also at the same time, instead of seeing what we were seeing in March and April, instead we see the numbers being admitted to hospitals staying, we're still around 22, 23 people in hospital, seven, eight people in the ICU. If those numbers are the same, in other words, if the outcomes from the cases and the virus are very different to the outcomes that we were seeing some months ago, does that mean that we should have a different policy response as to it? Does it? Do we start to treat the virus as being, in a sense, a different virus, or do we do we still say, well, no, it's the same thing? And even though the health outcomes are different because we have changed the way that we're protecting people who are vulnerable, and because people who are vulnerable are more aware of how they need to behave to protect themselves, and that the, those area those demographics that are now more likely to to be affected by it are far less likely to become ill and if they become ill are far less likely to become seriously ill does that does that have any effect also community infections are still at a low level we're still talking about clusters principally in the meat factory seem to be the the big, the big problem now is that not manageable i mean michael those are all very valuable questions that someone someone should ask I'm not going to, as I was told by the Irish Times, that uh, questions like that are arrogant and uh, literally nauseating. So that's put me back in my box. I'm just regretting that I didn't not I didn't decide to knock on and working on a vaccine myself early on, you know, because everybody else is doing it. Maybe if I I decided to transfer the shower room into a little bit of a lab, I could have got there by now and give, worked out a vaccine for myself. Oh, we can all go to Russia. Now, uh, Michael, speaking of a load of pointless people pointlessly milling around with no idea what they're actually doing or why they're there. Golf. Yeah. Oh, God. Golf is a long walk ruined, Michael. That's my stance on golf. Well, you know, we're talking here, presumably, about the, 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 the golf classic and the 
Minister for Agriculture, and I, I'm sorry, it's an easy one, but I, I, you have to say it, don't you? It's a, as Oscar Wilde would have said, to lose one Minister for Agriculture may look maybe uncounted a misfortune, but to lose two begins to look like carelessness. I'd say, uh, for, for so assuming you've you've missed this, dear listener, there was a the Ukfaros Gulf Society had their 50 year anniversary dinner there. And many of the best and brightest of the country, including Phil Hogan, uh, including a Supreme Court judge and former Attorney General, including some people from RTE, many former sec- uh, many former senators, many former TDs, and Derek Leary, the Minister for Agriculture, attended this thing. Apparently there were about 80 people. The table seating lists have been leaked, and you can see... There are tables there that have six people. There are tables there that have ten people at them. And the event was the day after the government announced new stricter guidelines. Now, these are only guidelines. But I think one thing is likely to come of this. And I suspect it will involve the resignation of Derek Cleary for a for two simple reasons. When the, uh, the Fulcher issue we had, where one of the executives of... Well, board members of Fulcher resigned after going to Italy. The newspapers reported that he was told that he could either resign or be resigned. (laughs) And then you have the general tone of this event, a golf classic involving the political and cultural elite. That's going to piss people off. So someone is going to have to be punished by that. And it's most likely going to be Cleary. As a question, as a question of what harm it did or whether it's right that he should resign, doesn't matter. Politically, if he doesn't resign, it's going to be problematic. He may. They may just brazen it through it. Um, they don't have that many people to replace him. I mean, that was the thing. As I said, I mean, to lose two ministers, I mean, this, this government lost its first minister for agriculture. How quickly? Was it in? It felt like the first week of the government. I don't know if that's right. Well, I mean, the thing there is they could cycle back in, uh, Barry Cohen, Cowan, and um, <laughs> you still can't get. You can't. I, 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 I slightly paused just before just to get it straight, and I still fucked it up. <laughs> I've got, I've got a train to do that more properly. They could cycle him in, and then when he's sacked over something else, technically you've only lost two ministers. Yeah, it's true. And you just. You know, like a like someone coming in to a wrestling match, you just bring in the double. Um, I wonder if Barry went to the uh, golf classic. Cycled, possibly. Uh, if he went, I hope he drove. <laughs> yeah, in in a tractor on the on the motorway. It would. Uh, why not? Let's go for the go for the full trifecta. It it is gas. I mean, everybody, of course, now is desperately apologising. Jerry Buttermer, who is the uh, of the Shannon, has apologised. Buttermer will be interesting as well. It'll be interesting to see if Buttermer uh, retains his position. That might be another resignation to see. Yeah. They, they got deeply unlucky about this. I mean, if the Fulcher thing was further out, because we were talking about at the time, it was the rarest of all things, a resignation. But the problem now is that because that, that black swan of an event has happened, yeah, if yes. you don't resign, like you give it a couple of months, that'll worn away. No one will remember it. But a week later, and now you're not resigning? Also, After making this guy resign? In fairness, if it had happened the day before... Yeah, that would have also been... I mean, But here's the thing, they're, they're just guidelines. And it's not even clear which of them they broke. Now, I would imagine once photos leak of the actual event in full, considering how many people are apologising, I, I think we can safely assume that some of the guidelines were broken. But they're guidelines. But the problem is politically... It just doesn't look great. I suppose if they're going to be got on something, the dinner had 80 people. Now, the number indoors, the maximum number is indoors is for 50. But what they did was they split the room and they partitioned, so they created two rooms. However, the 50 number is only really supposed to be for weddings. So this obviously didn't doesn't fall under, under that heading. So the weddings are an exception. And this is not the exception. So they're caught. But as you say, there are guidelines. There, there are no. There are no. There, there are no powers, legal powers of enforcement over it because the the law isn't sitting, and they have to pass legislation. It'll be the thirtieth of September, I think, before they're in a position to actually pass the legislation to give the guardian power to do anything about this. But it's just really bad optics, and I think part of it is is that sense that 
it they're also being they're they're being punished in a way because of the nature of the the change in the in the restrictions that are now applicable that okay i think partly people are tired they had been that sense that we could come out of this and it would be okay and therefore now that we're being pushed back in people that sense of hope has been dashed a bit people are now thinking god what is it going to be like how long are we going to be in this situation but even and then on top of that the, uh, there's just no coherence to the thing you can have you can have a you can have a, a, a harlem match or football match and i think that's fine I, I, i'm not objecting to that but in if if you're, you're going to have a match where you're going to have people actually literally heating up against each other there's going to be physical contact but they've said you can play on the field but you can't stand by yourself in the stand and watch the game because that would be dangerous you can't stand in it you can't have 500 people dotted around a stadium with the capacity of 20,000 because that would be dangerous but you can still have the game you can have the pubs are going to stay open as long as you have you spend nine quid on a burger, but you you can't have more than six people coming in, in inside a house at any one time, and people are saying, "Well, how does this make sense? How is it, How is this co- coherent? Why is this safe but that not safe?" I wonder, Michael, if you were to do you imagine when Michal Martin just you know when he's he's alone and he's behind the shock's desk and he's where he has wanted to be for so long. Do you think he's thinking to himself right now, this is everything I wanted it to be? <laughs> um, I I can imagine that he would have, in his dreams, have seen that the circumstances would have been different for the glorious day that became I mean, The only thing that is separating this, I would imagine, from some sort of horrible fever nightmare for Michal Martin is that Bertie Ahern isn't outside his window laughing at him. Listen. The most important thing for Michal is that Michal will not go down in the history books with the asterisks beside him, only leader of Fianna Fáil, never to be Taoiseach. No, instead he'll get an asterisk that says last leader of last Fianna Fáil. Last leader of Fianna Fáil, yes, that will be, that will be, the, that will be the asterisk to the footnote. He's done what he had to do. He has made it all the way to the top of the greasy pole. Now, how long he lasts on that particular greasy pole is... Definitely a question. Because I mean, particularly when he's up there with a group who seem to be actively greasing the pole. You you do get the feeling at times that Fine Gael are wandering around the country as if they were in opposition. Incredibly successfully, though. Yeah, it's wonderful It doesn't stuff. feel like they're in government no, at all. No. And they're very relaxed. Leo looks... Leo does not give the impression of being tarnished down a minister in a cabinet under the cosh of COVID with the horrible uh, economic recession hovering over them, with Brexit still to be worked out, with all sorts of geopolitical things happening with Putin in Russia. Why would he? He was able to offload every problematic department to Michal Martin, because Martin wanted a deal to stop himself being taken out and was willing to take every, like, housing and health yeah. together. I mean, the things we were talking about that were, when we were saying these are political decisions that look okay now, but a couple of months down the road, the negative impacts are going to be seen, and that's when Fine Gael will be in trouble. Well, Fine Gael aren't there to be in trouble anymore. No, no, now no. it's Martin's fault. It's There's all... a number of things people are pointing at and saying, this is ridiculous. I'm like, yeah, but Martin didn't do that. Fine Gael did that. Yeah. It's, uh, like, wait, say they last till next year, right? Say they're still there in the new year. And we start to see the first bills coming in from the, 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 the children's hospital, you know? And Simon Donnelly's minister for... Simon Donnelly. Simon Donnelly. Simon... Stephen yeah, Donnelly. Stephen Donnelly is minister for health and... Whoever is the Minister for Expenditures, Minister for Expenditure. Is that, is that a finagator? I like the way, Mike, Michael, you as a man with like a lifelong passion for politics just aren't even bothering to figure out who's, who's a minister anymore. I, God, I, I, I used to... That doesn't speak well of how long you expect these people to be in office. It doesn't. And do you know what? I mean, it used to be that I could... I, 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 well, no, I think it's more about my memory than anything else. My, I used to be able to rattle off cabinets and... and, and you sound like you are an American diplomat making deals with like an East German official 
just before the fall <laughs> and you're shaking hands with people like i'm not gonna bother to remember your name because yeah. when i get here tomorrow there's gonna be someone else yeah thanks igor no it's ivan yeah like it matters yeah give me like a week and i'll be right again <laughs> but anyway the fact is that the, the numbers have started say for example the, the, the children's hospital the numbers will start coming and they'll be horrific and i can guarantee you people will be turning around and start throwing stones at donnelly because when he's the minister for god's sake what he at? And Philly Gale would stand back and just sit there silently smiling away. Oh, well, nothing to do with us. Yeah. And then, you know, in the corridors afterwards, they'd be like, well, Stephen, we'd love to help you, but it's your brief. Yeah, no. It's not our brief. Not my problem. It's your brief. <laughs> oh, it's And then they'll be talking to journalists saying, you know, we were actually very close to securing a deal with uh, BAM for a reduction in casting, which most likely total horseshit. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, then, then the, you know, the government change and Stephen Donnelly and we're told he'd be on top of it but just couldn't get it over the line so we, we never got that reduction terrible tragic oh, no we had it we had it under control we had oh yeah we we were like minutes away from uh from getting back that budget but you know Stephen Donnelly comes in and then bam and the budget's gone yeah and it'll be a question really I mean whenever Leo wants to pull the trigger as if a lot of people, you know, were talking about whether Leo was bothered really being Taoiseach or not. And he didn't look like it at the end of his other term. But now, I mean, why wouldn't you want to be Taoiseach again after this? Yeah, this yeah. is like, this is a palate cleanser in the middle of a meal. With this, the start may not have been great, but you know, this is fantastic. Yeah, and you've got great hope for the future. Yeah, yeah, I begin to wonder if actually the truth of it all is that Leo didn't really think of this as being him resigning and not being teacher anymore. He was more like a teacher saying, you know what, I'm going to go on sabbatical. I'm going to go around and I'm going to visit Laos and Vietnam. I'm going to do all that Asian thing that I never got the chance to as a student. And then I'll come back and then I'll be Taoiseach again. Because he's just, this is just a little sabbatical. He'll leave me all in. And then sometime maybe around Easter next year, when, who, please God, AstraZeneca and lots of others will have flooded us all with wonderful and effective vaccines we'll all be vaccinated the economy will start to be opening up again the growth will be zooming up at nine percent and he said yeah i think now would be a good time to yeah yeah i think i'll be t-shook again now please yeah that's mine i'll take that <laughs> i'll just have that but and wish your best of luck to them it is it is fantastic that i mean Fianna Fáil can stand there and say we are the largest party we are in government although well 37, 37, but they'll still say it. Yeah. We're the largest party, we're in government, we hold the balance of power, We've, and people are just like, ah, you do, don't you? Ah, oh, it's great, isn't it? Sure, are you enjoying it? It's good, it's good, is it? Oh, yeah, good. yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. But you know, you're fucked, they're right. Yeah, the polls have you on, that have you on 9%, well, that's all, yeah. they're all, yeah, they're, like, they're outliers. You're, you're like a man on the side of a cliff, but he's got some grapes near him, and he's just having the time of his life on those grapes but it's not it's only ending one way isn't it yeah. doesn't really matter how many grapes you can fit into your mouth that cliff is still collapsing yeah yeah and like you, you might have a relatively nice while but unless you can work a way to get up out of the cliff you're still hitting the bottom where you will drown and animals tigers maybe will eat your body anyway i suppose uh on that very charming image, we can draw a close over that particular issue. I don't know why I'm talking about tigers so much today. I like tigers, always did. It was one of my favourite animal tigers. I saw them when I, I remember seeing them when I said I was seven or eight. They used to have these, I think, um, Siberian tigers in Dublin Zoo. I remember just being absolutely impressed by the size of these things. And you looked into that as this thing would walk up and down the front of the glass, and you looked at it. And you know, some people maybe would have looked, some little kids would look looked at that, oh look, it's like a big pussycat. I looked at that and I thought, yeah, that would put its mouth around my head and crack me like a walnut and suck out all the good stuff. I'm glad that is at that side of the glass and I'm at this side of the glass because that's, and that's a machine for tearing other smaller animals apart, but very beautiful. <laughs> anyway, I was about to say a bit like Leo, but no, not like Leo at all, even though Leo's a lion. Leo's a different animal. Leo, I must say, I also like him more now that he's uh, 
out of office. Well, he's more relaxed. He's having more fun. He's more relaxed. But he also seems to have gone back more to what people thought Leo was going to be like before Leo got into office. Let Leo be Leo. Yeah. And there's a little just bit of like, there's a little bit of fun. There's a little bit of, you know, right wing stuff there. Oh, that's great. A bit of snark, a bit of snarkiness, a bit of cut. Yeah, I mean, if I couldn't remember anything about what he was actually like in government, I might actually like to see him go back in. But unfortunately, we are cursed with memory. Yeah, that is, yeah. I and mean, if I didn't know anything about history, I'd be quite happy to repeat it. <laughs> anyway, speaking of history, history would predict that we would be back on Sunday. Uh, we are a- nothing if not predictable. The time may change on a day. Yes. But we're usually there at some point. Like a guest, where you're not quite sure where they'll turn up, but at some point your day will be ruined. Eventually. So, back with our, our, our miscellany, our Sunday miscellany of all of the lovely things happening in Ireland and abroad. I'm sure we'll have things to say about the United States and the ongoing fun and the uh, the, the election for the world's most powerful leader. Uh, I'm sure something will happen. I mean, who knows? We may have a new Minister for Agriculture by Sunday. That'll be something we can talk about. Who do we have left? Anne Rabbit? <laughs> oh, we'll find somebody. I, I mean, we were joking before that they don't have that many people and they'll have to start cycling them, but, like, they don't have that many people and at this rate they may actually need to start cycling them. Well, they could always bring But in not them. as a joke this time. They could bring somebody in from the Shannon if they wanted. You could. You could. I can't remember the last time we had a cabinet minister. for. I remember Gareth Fitzgerald had Professor Dooge, I think was Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, from the Shannon. Uh, have we had since somebody since then? Uh, answers answers on a postcard. The Shannon occasionally does important things and uh, occasionally, sorry, he occasionally does important things and always serves as the resting home for failed politicians. I like the Shannon. It's a very pretty room. Lovely shade of blue. It is a very lovely room. And it's the right size as well. Yeah, and nice, like, nice, nice place to sit and watch. It reminds me of like a, a French imperial court. I could see someone being sentenced to death in a room like that. It's funny, actually. I was reading a history... Uh, I was reading history of the of the um, the herbists uh, at the moment. I was reading some some of it today. I was talking about the French courts, and I, I it, there was a, there was an element in it which I thought actually reminded me a little bit of um, current political movements globally. Uh, Saint Just, who was a great f- friend and defender of Robespierre, <laughs> you like this, Gary? Sorry, this is. Anyway, I I probably will finish that. Uh, I think it was Danton was being. Uh, Danton was being brought, had, was being tried, you know, and Danton, of course, was a great hero of the people. And Danton would start to speak, to, they started to get worried that he might actually start to influence the people. So Saint-Just managed to get a log that uh, the accused would not be allowed to defend themselves. And if they showed any disrespect to the court, they would be removed from the court and the rest of the trial would take place in their absence. I mean, to be fair, of all the things someone could say about you, the, the fact that we let him have a trial and it was rigged, but he still spoke so well. We just had to pass a law to just get rid of that entirely. I was getting dodgy there for a while. I There are I, I, there are activists uh, alive and well in the United States and not just there. I think who would look at that and say, you know, I think that's a very sensible policy. All this nonsense about people standing up in court and being able to contest what is obviously true there is actually a great lesson in 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 danton's life or george jack uh danton because danton was one of the main figures a pivotal figure in the the first french republic and and the overthrow of the monarchy and then he he probably responsible for the beginning of the terror the first terror well that's the thing he sits on the committee of public safety which causes the terror but then he starts going like lads this is like this is getting out of control and unfortunately, he doesn't quite realise, because the French didn't quite realise this, that sometimes when you build a structure, that structure takes on a life of its own. And so Danton, by trying to moderate the terror, ends up becoming a victim of the terror. And um, one of my favourite things in history, Michael, is reading accounts of people who come from common law countries and then end up before French courts mm-hmm. and run into the Napoleonic law. Yeah. And they walk in and they're like, the judge is going to be impartial and fair. And then they'll basically get the legal equivalent of a judge looking up at them and going, you, sir, are a wanker. <laughs> and anytime anyone writes about it, they're always like, just the, the immense culture shock, but also that sort of, oh, bollocks. 
the, I suppose oh, the only, this is not common now. The only thing about the French Revolution that does give you a little bit of um, hope, I don't know if hope actually is the right word, but sense that, you know, things can work their work themselves out in their own funny little way, is that all of the various groups, like the Girondists start to get involved and they get it in the neck, and then the Montagnards take over and they get it, and then you have this wonderful battle between you have I don't know, the Hurt Herbertist or whatever they were. You've got a group between the, the Robespierre crowd. Robespierre wants to develop a thing called the uh, the worship of reason and the, the higher deities, a kind of deism. So it's temple of reason and all that. And you got the Her and you got the Herbertists who were radic who were hardline atheists, and they were into the dechristianization of France and. They introduce these the law of suspects and the Vendée and all that, and you got and they they end up because the more it gets more and more and more extreme, and of course the happy outcome is they end up killing each other one after the other. They all end up on the guillotine. Robespierre gets ends up there. Danton gets up there. The, Jacques Herbert gets up there until eventually. Well, how does it all, how does it all finish with Napoleon putting a crown on his head and saying, "I'm emperor." Yep. And people being happy with that. And people being delighted. <laughs> like, we tried the temples to reason, and we tried to, you know, all men are pure and society corrupts them. And you know what? Emperors. That's the next hot thing. That's what we want. We want listen, lads, that was a shit show. <laughs> and, then what, and then he goes on, he's a proper emperor. He, he goes around Europe making kings. Okay, you're going to be, I think, more... Is it Murat? Because Murat, Joachim Murat, make, he makes him king of Naples, and Bernadotte makes him king of Sweden. Somebody else is king of Spain. Makes kings all over the place. All of his marshals from the Great Revolutionary Army. You're the Duke of. I'm going to make you a Duke now, and I'm going to make you an Earl and a Count. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. We we know this. We understand this. This makes sense. And you're back. He has the Pope. The Pope is brought up and the Pope is there to give him, to crown him emperor. Now, slightly changing it, he takes the crown from the Pope and then puts it on his own head because he crowns himself. But anyway, my point is... <laughs> Which, I mean, historically is a power move. So, and even for poor old Napoleon, what happens is it all goes rather badly wrong because he's a little bit too international. And then there you are, 1815, and there's a Bourbon back in the throne of France. It's like nothing had ever changed. And in fact, that was what they used to say of the Bourbons, isn't it? They remembered, but they forgot nothing. They learned nothing and forgot nothing, which is why, of course, eventually they're all, they all end up at it. Anyway. And then, of course, after a while, he goes, you know what? I did it once. Fuck it, I could do it again. <laughs> yeah. Back on for Elba. Up the... Let's try it. Let's try one, one more big push. That'll be grand. It, uh, I will say this for, for Danton, just before we close. Yeah. He was a fantastic speaker. He must have been, because I think he had smallpox as a child. Have I you ever he, read any of his um, was, any of his speeches? I tell you, I, I've not just read them, I've heard them claimed. Oh. Because I, if you haven't seen it, there's a fantastic film of Danton's life, just called Danton. And Danton is played by Gérard Depardieu. And it is a great movie. And there's a fantastic scene where I think Danton's going to be tried. You know, there's a famous quote from Louis XIV, where he, he Louis says, L'état c'est moi, the state is me. Well, somebody says something to Danton about the people, le peuple. And, and you know, Depardieu was a great choice for the for the role. Turns around and says, le peuple, le peuple, je suis le peuple, I am the people. It's absolutely tremendous. Uh, no, my favourite one from him is, and this is a bit of a cliche, um, it was his, um, to conquer we must dare, dare again, always dare, and France will save so itself. itself. France will save itself, yes. That's it. And you just get this image of this screaming man in a temple of reason. You're like, okay, that's like that must have been a moment to see. Okay, oh, he, he must be fantastic. But like I say, for Saint Just to, to do what he did, because they were so terrified of his capacity to move the people, because he was very, he was a fleshy, 
he was accused of being corrupt and he had pecuniary affairs and all that and he liked good stuff he i mean he wasn't a good looking man he'd been he had had small because of child i think he'd been run over or gored by a, a, a by a, a either a boar or a, or a bull or something and it, it damaged his face so but he he liked the good stuff and he, he had that sort of fleshy pleasure to uh, about him which the you know the people's rob spear was this desiccated stick insect who genuinely would stage i mean even as the the guillotine rolled knocked head after head off rob spear was in principle opposed to the death penalty didn't agree with the death penalty which i've always thought was one of the great comedy comic notions of the of, of history that Robespierre going well why in this case for these 40 or fifty thousand people and for those two or three hundred thousand in the Vendée, i will allow it but in principle i'm opposed to the death penalty however hopefully we are not going to see heads rolling in stephen three anytime soon but if we do we'll talk about it on sunday so until then we'll have a good weekend uh stay safe stay well stay dry and we'll speak again on sunday bye bye all the best <laughs>